Ladies and gentlemen, this is The Forward Curve. Hello and welcome to The Forward Curve, a weekly podcast covering the commodity markets and the global economy, brought to you by Gold Street Advisors, the independent research and advisory firm. In this episode, covering the events of September 13th through the 19th of 2020, we'll discuss the state of play in China, as well as an overview of the global automotive industry. And as always, we'll get an update on the latest headline figures and trends. I'm Christian Klavodecher, and joining me today will be our Chief Analyst Robin Barr and Gold Street Advisors CEO Lachlan Tulin. If you enjoy this podcast, I encourage you to subscribe to The Forward Curve, and be sure to check out our website, www.goldstreetadvisors.com for information on what Gold Street Advisors can do for you and your company. To kick things off, let's bring on our friend Robin Barr. Thanks for joining us today, my friend. Thanks, Christian. Uh, This week, I thought we would look at two issues critical to industrial commodities and particularly the metals. And these are uh, China and the automotive market, big consumers of commodities. China consumes over 50% of global consumption. Most metals, while the global automotive industry accounts for a significant share of metals ranging from A, aluminum, through to Z, which is zinc. Okay, so let's look at China. You know, we've had a lot of data, as usual, at the beginning of the month, and this shows that China is furthest ahead in its economic recovery, somewhere back to about 85% of its pre-pandemic levels as it traces out a sharp reshaped rebound. Uh, and this is despite the fact that stimulus has been very modest. And we saw that with money supply growth not rising as strongly as it has in the past. Higher retail sales are accompanying the recovery in industrial production. And Chinese annual growth is now notably outpacing all other large economies. A key question, though, is how much can this accelerate in the face of a sluggish global economy? The Premier, uh, Li Keqiang, said there is more fiscal room to stimulate the economy further if necessary. But it's believed the government doesn't want to add to the huge indebtedness of the economy and misallocation of capital resources. Great. Actually, Robin, let me just jump in here to ask you a question. When China does stimulus, you know, is it just printing more yuan? Does China sell securities to finance the debt uh, like the U.S. does via treasuries? How does that work over there? The short answer, it does both. So prints more currency but also sell securities both at the central government level and the provincial government level. But I think selling securities, selling debt seems to have the upper hand because the Chinese currency is appreciating. So that would tend to suggest that it's not printing more yuan, it's actually selling debt uh, as we're seeing in most Western economies. So if I wanted to, could I buy Chinese debt right now? You can buy Chinese debt and you'll get quite a good return because uh, if you looked at the 10-year in China, that's yielding almost 4% compared to the US, which is about 50 or 60 basis points. So the interest rate differential, very attractive in terms of buying Chinese debt. 
Well, for sure. Thanks. We saw the trade surplus widen sharply in August, again, in, indicative of the rebound in the economy, again, beating market expectations uh, and exports rose by nine and a half percent, the fastest pace since March 2019, suggesting business activities are improving in the rest of the world. And I think we're seeing that, albeit much more slowly than they are in China. Surprisingly, imports fell by 2.1%. That is kind of strange. So, you know, why would imports be falling in the midst of a growing economy like that? I think it's the type of imports that China would be seeking to have. So resources, metals, both refined and in concentrate form, scrap is what China prefers rather than finished goods. After all, China's the factory of the world. So it shouldn't need to import much finished goods, maybe some high value uh, products that it doesn't manufacture, but it largely imports resources rather than finished goods. I think that's where the answer would lie. Um, Another indication of the economy's growth is that, and again, it sort of speaks to the uh, question that we had earlier, local governments are continuing to borrow record amounts to spend on infrastructure in a bid to revive domestic growth. Since the outbreak of the pandemic, local authorities have issued a lot of local and national debt, so uh, selling securities. China's total social financing, TSF, this is a broad measure of credit and liquidity in the economy. That went up sharply in August, well above market expectations again, and was up 13.3% from a year earlier. So these numbers clearly point to a strong issuance of government bonds to fund infrastructure projects. This will be uh, a good thing for the economy, sets up positive conditions going into the final quarter of the year. More importantly, economists as a result are raising their expectations for Chinese GDP growth this year to 5%. And that compares with expectations uh, around March when GDP forecasts were only between 1% to 2%. So quite a big uptick. And GDP growth is seen moving even higher in the first quarter of 2021. So this sets the scene, quite a positive scene, for when the Chinese Communist Party convenes next month to map out the country's 14th five-year plan. The current one is important, as the next five years will be critical in lifting the country towards becoming a high-income economy amid a much more hostile global environment. Okay, I've got to jump in here, Robin, because we hear five-year plans, and particularly in the West, uh, that's always referred to with a bit of derision. So let me just ask the obvious question. Does China do a new five-year plan actually every five years, or will new plans be drawn up before the five-year term is over? Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting question. I would answer it this way. I think in normal circumstances, it's a fairly rigid uh, five-year plan. Mm-hmm. Nothing really happens uh, in the intervening years. Of course, this is not normal times, and therefore, dependent on how the economy evolves from here, whether the rebound continues or begins to falter could well mandate whether there'll be changes 
within either the current five-year plan or the next five-year plan that's beginning soon. So I think we're going to have to wait and see. And obviously, it's going to be dependent on how the economy develops uh, over the coming months. Understood. So there is some flexibility there for <laughs> in two years' time, if things haven't panned out the way they planned, to set a new five-year plan. Yeah, I think that looks to be what's going to uh, to happen. Let's move on to the next uh, topic, which is the automotive market, a very significant consumer of all metals and likely to, to grow over coming years. Passenger vehicle sales for this year estimated to be down perhaps by around 20%. China will account for about a 15% decline. The US, 24% and Europe, 25%. Car sales will not recover to pre-crisis levels until the middle of this decade, according to credit ratings agency Moody's. It said the 27% drop in worldwide car sales in the first half of this year had bottomed out and it expected a sharp rise next year. While car sales peaked at 95 million in 2017, by 2019, they had already slipped to 90 million, nine zero. The auto industry was already beginning a cyclical downturn before the onset of the COVID-19 induced recession and companies have started preparing for weaker demand. However, there is a silver lining in perhaps uh, a rather gloomy assessment. Against this backdrop of a sluggish market, EVs or electric vehicles are gaining market share. Tesla leads EV sales in China, Australia and the US. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned this, actually. This is fascinating to me. You know, we always hear about Tesla. What other EV manufacturers are out there that are dominating markets? Like you didn't mention Europe just now. Who's dominating Europe? Well, in Europe, uh, it's the likes of the Renault Zoe. That's proven the best-selling EV in Europe for the first half of this year. Admittedly, nearly half of the world's top 10 bestsellers are Chinese brands. But other players are gaining ground. For example, the Chevy Bolt in North America, VW, Audi, General Motors, they all have ambitious plans to roll out a large number of EVs. So the Chinese aren't the only ones, but they are the leaders. But other auto manufacturers are playing hard to catch up. So we saw sales of EVs top 2.1 million globally last year, uh, surpassing 2018, already a record year, to boost the stock to 7.2 million EVs currently. Gotcha. So on the one hand, that sounds like a big number, but probably the grand scheme things it really isn't. So how do sales of EVs compare to sales of your standard combustion engine vehicles at this point? Admittedly, very low. EVs accounted for around 2.6% of global car sales and about 1% of the global car stock in 2019. So petrol, diesel fuel cars and vehicles still most of the market so low globally for evs currently but they're expected to rise in the coming decade and this will be driven by emissions regulations in europe and china as well as decarbonization targets from countries such as norway the uk and germany now um, improving battery technology and one of these ways would, would be to include more nickel in the battery this offers higher density uh, and therefore gives greater mileage before recharging. 
auto experts say that shortcut technologies such as induction charging or wireless charging, this may encourage more consumers to switch to EVs. So you mean car batteries that can be recharged similar to the way my iPhone is recharged? Pretty much so. Wireless or induction charging, this is one of several bets taken by the auto industry to alleviate the inconvenience of recharging EVs. Uh, Taxis and bus fleets, um, they all have dependable routes and waiting places. So they make an obvious first step for testing the technology. Other fringe technologies are also being explored as ways to improve charging, such as battery swapping. So here we would use robots to change batteries at a swap station. Gotcha. So, so let me just ask you a general question here about global automotive production and commodity consumption. Can you give me an idea as to how much of each base and precious metal is used annually to make automobiles globally? Quite a wide range. I mean, to, um, to give you quite a simple estimate, I, don't, I know of no vehicle that uses gold. So that would be zero <laughs> for a precious metal like gold. But that could range up to, up to at least a third maybe a quarter for most metals. Copper would tend to be three to four times higher in an EV compared to a gasoline or diesel automotive. Yeah, we would still use uh, steel and therefore iron ore. You know, most cars are still produced using a steel chassis, which is often galvanized, so you'd use zinc. So, yeah, I would roughly state between one quarter to one third of most metallic commodities are used in, uh, in autos. Um, nickel is an interesting one because that's primarily used in the batteries. A typical EV battery contains about 50 kilograms of nickel, and that's likely to increase because uh, the likes of Tesla and other automakers. They want to try and remove both high-priced and conflict-ridden cobalt. Cobalt's produced in the mm. DRC, often with charred labour. So that doesn't sound very good no. uh, for an automaker to be using charred labour. So they want to engineer out cobalt, replacing that with more and more nickel. So at the moment, 50 kilograms, but that's probably going to increase quite rapidly over the coming years. All right, Robin, thanks a lot for that. Okie doke. Thanks for some interesting questions. Hopefully, you know, our listeners can take away uh, some interesting tidbits to, to bore people at parties. <laughs> All right, thanks again. And now we move on to Lachlan Toolin to sum the week up for us. Um, looking at markets, there's not a terrible change from last week. We see gold, it's still around 1976. It's still below the 2000 mark. That's still quite optimistic. I believe gold is consolidating here and perhaps we will see another leg higher where the price will again go back above $2,000 an ounce. Not much to report on base metals. Markets have really been treading water all week. Copper does seem to be edging up towards 6,800. It was above it yesterday, and we expect it to continue higher. Looking at iron ore, it's come off its highs. It was up at $130 at the start of the week. It's down to 124 but that's still a very strong price for iron ore. In fact, most commodities are showing quite strong prices. This may be due to the fact that the stock market, although it's down today, it has recovered 
went back strongly over the past several weeks. A little bit of volatility last week, but it nonetheless appears to be quite strong again this week, not so much today. And we did have encouraging unemployment numbers where initial jobless claims fell down to 860,000, which while still quite a large number, that number is actually reducing. So that is a good sign that people do appear to be getting back to work. Hmm. On the interest rate side, uh, again, LIBOR looks very, very tame. It's likely to remain that way for a long time, especially due to the Fed coming out this week and again reiterating the fact that interest rates will remain low. The same can be said for much of the Treasury curve. Interest rates, the number I tend to look at is the dollar index, which is the dollar against a weighted average of some major currencies. Mm-hmm. It's been hovering around 92 to 93. Currently, it's 93.21, which is lowish, and it does still present the image of a slightly weak dollar. I don't necessarily see that advancing anytime soon. One little small point, actually, to point out, there's a number that I tend to look at called the TED spread. Okay. And the TED spread is the difference between treasuries and euro dollars. And what that points out is the difference between lending to the US government and towards lending dollars in the interbank market in London. So essentially, it's the risk of non-US banks against the United States government. Hmm. And it's a good indication of how much risk the banks are at. That number is particularly low at the moment, which is a good sign, because after the economic collapse that we did have in the second quarter, it was important that the banks did remain there, maintain integrity, and that there was no surprises. And at the moment, it looks like the banking sector is remaining strong. reason I mention this is because it's a good indicator for a return of the economy back to its previous strength, because the banks are in good shape and they're able to lend out to the market and provide credit to the market, which will hopefully be a strong recovery to maintain that and keep that going. Generally, we're still looking favorably on commodities due to the fact that while virus cases have increased, it does look like they're not as serious as it was before. It looks like there's a lot of people catching it, perhaps they're younger people, uh, and the death rate does seem to be falling, which is a very positive. That's the most important sign. Absolutely. Um, and I think that we could, as we've seen in China, where there was there is currently a large infrastructure spend going on, I think we may start to see that in the United States and Europe. And that would certainly help industrial commodities, as I would expect further demand for them as these infrastructure policies come into place over the next six to 18 months. All right, great. Thank you very much, Lachlan. And that will wrap things up on this third episode of The Forward Curve. I'd like to thank Robin and Lachlan for joining me today. And of course, I want to thank you for joining us. Please be sure to subscribe to The Forward Curve on your favorite podcast platform. You can also visit our website, www.goldstreetadvisors.com for more information about Gold Street Advisors and the services we provide. Join us again next week for a rundown of the state of the commodity markets and the global economy. I'm Christian Clavadecher, and on behalf of the Gold Street Advisors team, I thank you for listening, and be sure to always keep an eye and ear on the forward curve.